again for another exciting episode of Life of Brian dot 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 Mannix that is uh, with me Kevin Hillier and of course Brian Mannix. Oh hello Kev and welcome to 2023. How's it going? Yeah good quickly already. Uh, uh, Been been in our beach place for a a while and and it's just gone wooshka finished. Wooshka? Wooshka and back to back to uh, back to you know city life and stuff. So feeling a bit yeah. green acreish at the moment, but we'll get over that. Um, oh, fair enough. Fair uh, enough. Terrific program coming up. We'll get to our guests in a tick. But uh, what have you been up to? What have you been doing apart from jumping off bridges and things? Well, you know, I've been you know I'm going to go bull shark hunting soon. But um, oh, I've actually I actually heard something the other day, which I think is pretty freaking interesting. Um, and you know I love a conspiracy theory, so oh, you know. here we go. <laughs> well, I think. <laughs> well, okay, um, but I I think this is more than a conspiracy theory, right. and and okay, so I'll tell you what I know. Right. Okay. Now you remember about a week or so ago, every plane in America was grounded. Yep. Every plane, every single plane, not a flight, not since nine eleven has the it had been that thing. Anyway, what happened was the FFA, that's the, the yeah, air traffic controllers, right, right? The system that they speak to the pilots with, that went down, didn't work. So hmm, that's a bit unusual. Okay, fair enough. Even more unusual, the backup system that they have also didn't work that day. Wow, that's pretty unusual that both systems go down on the same day. Okay, but even more interesting, the very next day, the same thing happens in Canada. Every single plane is grounded. Both the systems don't work. Sounds a bit more of a strange coincidence. But then on New Year's Day, the Philippines, both their systems went down and every plane was grounded. So, wow, it almost sounds like somebody's hacked into them, you know, Chinese or Russian thing. Now, this medical school in somewhere in America and they got hacked and they had to pay a million-dollar ransom to the hackers to get back into their computers and all that. So they paid the money and then they got into their computers and that solved the problem. But to pay these kind of ransoms, you have to pay in Bitcoin. Right now, if America paid off the hackers for the planes, they would have had to pay it in Bitcoin. So if they had to buy a whole lot of Bitcoins, you would expect that the price of Bitcoins would rise. Well, the day after all the planes in America were grounded, Bitcoin went up by 20%. What do you think about that? So you think they paid them off and didn't make it public knowledge? Well, how stupid are you going to look if you've got, you know, you're supposed to be protecting your people and here's somebody hacking into your planes and grounding your planes. Well, you're going to admit that or you're going to try and sweep it under the carpet? I think you're going to try and sweep it under the carpet. You would try, well, the little my, my little James Bond here is saying what I'd do is, I'd yes, I'd pay them off and then I'd try and find out who the hell it was and uh, secretly take them out. Well, exactly, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think the fact that every plane in America is grounded, the next day every plane in Canada is grounded and it's already happened in the Philippines and the Bitcoin price goes up 20% in 24 hours seems very, very sus to me, Kev. Very sus. Mm. Any thoughts mm-hmm. you have on that, please share with us on our social media platforms. If, you, uh, <laughs> if you've heard anything that you can add to or take away from what Brian has just said, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely love to hear from you. Well, there you go. So there, I've started the year with something to actually say. There, there you go. go. <laughs> there you go. No, that's it. I know you love a conspiracy theory, and uh, and I do too, to a point. Uh, but that is that's an intriguing one. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a bit more than a conspiracy theory. I think it's a cover up. But you know, I can't prove that. Yeah. Well, Woodward and Bernstein, we ain't, but, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll take under advisement from anybody any more information you can share with us on that. Well, you know, Bob Woodward, 
he wasn't even a journalist. He was a worked for the military and at the White House. All right. He's that's another conspiracy theory, which I'll go into another time. <laughs> yeah, one per program is our limit. <laughs> <laughs> the conspiracies of Brian. There we go. Oh goodness me, that's a that's a never ending podcast series. I can tell you, uh, Mercot's driving excellence. Uh, they're they're good. I, I picked up something. I was just having a look at their website the other day, and I picked something up, and I reckon mm. this encapsulates everything that they try and tell you, and everything that we've been trying to tell you. At one little mm-hmm. phrase, it says, uh, "Drivers have a belief that their driving is above average." And they justify that by saying that they're still alive because because they're still with us. That means, well, well my driving must be good because I'm not dead. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm being frivolous about that in a way, but it, it, it actually is something that we need to bring back and think about really seriously about when you jump in your car, you have a lot of, uh, you know, instinctive behaviour things that you do that aren't good. There's the way you drive in a lot of cases. It's not perfect. It can be better, mm. and that's that's what Mercot's offer you: a chance to make it better, to make it safer, to make it not just for you, but for everybody and for, for the people around you. So that's uh, that's our message from Mercot's to you for this podcast: is just jump on the phone, have a talk to them, or jump on the website, and uh, and you know, don't be under that false apprehension that your driving is above average because it probably isn't. It's not. It's below average. Your driving is absolutely shit house. So get down to Murcott's one three hundred triple five five seven six. I wouldn't have said shit house, but you know, I'm, I'm okay. I've got I've got some grey areas. <laughs> oh, I wasn't talking about you. I was just talking in general. One three hundred five 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 seven six is that number. That's the number. And mercots.edu.au, defensive driving, driving awareness workshops. So do all those things. Just jump on their website, and uh, there's online options and all that stuff. So check all that out. Now, our guest today, we've got two beauties, and uh, you've heard from one of them before. So we're going to have the second part of our interview with Clem Burke, the drummer from Blondie. Mm. Uh, talking. Yeah, I was going to say, well, when we left him uh, in part one, they just had their first big hit uh, here in Australia within the flesh, which obviously then went gangbusters all over the world and that was the start of the Blondie phenomena. Um, yeah. So we're going to talk about touring Australia. We're going to talk about his time with the Eurythmics as well as uh, with Blondie, about uh, the rock opera. He's writing a whole lot of stuff, but uh, lots of Blondie stuff in uh, coming up with Clem as well. Do you reckon the guy ever sleeps? Not judging by the amount of bands he's in. Um, <laughs> just works and works. Five five or six bands at any given time he's in and, you know, he talk, you'll hear, he's talking about some of the gigs they've got coming up for Blondie with Iggy Pop in Japan, with um, the Coachella uh, concerts, Glastonbury, all sorts of things they've got coming up. He's, his schedule, his diary must already be full for 2029, I reckon. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's very impressive. Uh, man, and Very. the other guest, of course, is someone uh, I've been chasing for a while. And finally, nailed him down and got him. And uh, God, it was great to catch up with Don Most, Donny Most, Ralph Mel from Happy Days. Yeah, what a what a treat that was. And um, yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting guy. And um, and who knows who knew that he could sing. Well, he started singing early, as you'll hear in the interview, and uh, we're going to play uh, his version of Mac the Knife at the end of the show, uh, which is a really good version of the Bobby Darren song. But he talks about acting. He talks about uh, the amazing thing, and this is the second time this has happened in this podcast, someone talking about turning down a role that they finished up taking, but turning it down originally because they thought they had something better. Um, yeah. <laughs> John O'Hurley did it with Seinfeld with Peterman and uh, and uh, Donnie Mose did it originally with Ralph Mouth. You'll hear the story behind all that coming up. So strap yourself in because it's good stuff and it's part it's, one of the Donnie Most interview. Oh, it sounds like a great show today. going to be a good one. So let's get to Clem Burke first up and have a chat to him about what happened when he got to Australia. All right. The first time I got to Australia, I think I got a hold of this this little magazine, The, the Fortnight of Fuhrer. Familiar with that? No. It's about when the the Who first went to Australia. It's a legendary thing. It was the Who, the small faces together, and uh, I think Paul Jones from Man for Man with support. And uh, it was the type of thing where they, you know, traveling, especially back then, you know, from from London to Australia was a pretty uh, long process. I mean, it's like 24 hours. So, I mean, I think, you know, they got a little 
had a couple of drinks probably and took a couple of sleeping pills and things. So when they get off the plane, they were pretty rowdy. And one one thing led to another. It's, it's a real interesting thing. But, you know, they were basically the who were banned yep. from Australia. And they only went back a few years ago. But there's a there's a it's like a, it's not a book. It's not a magazine. It's kind of like a pamphlet. It has all the press clippings from each town that they went through and the outrage that they caused. And uh, it was kind of like that kind of Rupert Murdoch, yellow journalism type of type of vibe thing. Because, you know, like we would be like, you know, put a cigarette out on the, on the street corner or throw a beer can in a pool or something. And people would get like think we were going really, uh, you know, punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. I do remember I do remember reading about all that stuff. Uh, I think it was about 10 or 11 at the time. Um, and, right. and yeah, yeah, when they got booted out. And Pete Townsend famously said, I will never set foot in that country as long right, as. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Uh, and he did it for for a, a lifetime almost. No, they, they didn't go back until uh, just a few years ago. Yeah, it was yeah, a big to, deal that they went back. A lot of people don't know about that uh, the way that was coined and whatever. But uh, I, maybe they just coined that term because of the the, the magazine. Because uh, even I did a panel about the Who at South by uh, with Steve Van Zandt and uh, a couple other people. Uh, Colin Blundstone from the Zombies oh, yeah. and Rod Argent and a few people. But it's on a panel about the Who. And no one really knew what I was talking about when I I actually brought the I had the magazine with me oh, to show wow. them what it was about. Yeah. But yeah. So I always I always kind of relate that Blondie experience in the in the so I went there in 77, I guess. The band support band was a band called the Ferrets, I think. Yes. Yep. Yes. Good mate of Brian's, Billy Miller. Billy Miller. Yeah. Oh, okay. Tell them I said hi. I, I think we took a school bus across the desert. You know, everybody oh. flies in Australia. Yeah. I think we took a school we took a school bus across the desert to get from where would you be going to go to cross the desert? To get to Brisbane or something? You'd be going to, to get, Perth. Take Perth, a bus probably. all the way to Perth from like Melbourne. Would that be that Yeah, from be, probably Adelaide? Yeah. Pretty archers. Yeah. Maybe from Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, in a school bus. The yeah. <laughs> That'd be a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be my yeah. fun. And, our tour manager is a guy called Ray McGuire, who's uh, who I'm still know, in contact Ray. with. Well, there you go. Yeah, he lives just up the road from me. I saw him about two weeks oh, ago. Wow. I did a gig for him for the Pan Packs, which is the Olympics for old people. And, um, right, okay. and that was really that was a really cool gig, and uh, he's going really well. He's um, he's a really good well, guy. And I I saw him in Austin. He was trying to set up a, a, like a. a like a, a a game reserve or something in out in Austin, Texas, or something a few years back. I don't know if that ever really came together, but I saw him there doing it. When I see yeah. him, I'll ask him about his game park because I I don't right, know right. anything about it. But, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's I, great that you know, right? Yeah, tell him I said hi for sure. I will for sure. He's yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm due to go and have lunch with him, so uh, oh, okay. I'll uh, I'll pass on your regards and uh, yeah, find, for out, sure. find out about his game park. Well, that yeah, would, yeah. you you might have been able to work there, uh, Clem, if you'd got your what your job that you wanted to be when you were a kid. Didn't you want to be a forest ranger or something? Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, one of the things I thought about being. Yeah, forest ranger. Yeah. When Blondie started and when all that started, did you think that you'd still be doing uh, what you're doing now? I don't think there's any way I could have imagined that. No, that would have been. Uh, you know, when the band stopped in the in the early '80s, I, I kind of kept going. I played with Eurythmics on and off for about ten years, yep. and uh, we did an amazing tour of Australia. I think in '87 it was or something. Yeah. No, but you know, now no, at this age, no, I would have never thought. But you know, rock and roll was kind of middle aged when uh, when we started. I guess I mean not even middle aged, if you want to say when it started in the mid '50s. So in the seventies, it was only rock and roll was only twenty years old. Rock and roll now is like what, like seventy years old or yep. something now. It, you never really thought that the that that art form, if you want to call it that. I mean, rock and roll now is like jazz to me. It's not pop music, you know. It's not really popular. It's it's kind of I can imagine what jazz musicians were, felt like when rock and roll, the advent of rock and roll in the in the fifties, when when jazz was really the popular music prior to rock and roll starting. Now. You know, I mean, there's no rock and roll bands having big hit records, as far as I can tell. You know, uh, the Blondie thing, when when we stopped, a lot of people, as time went on, said, oh, we'd get, eventually get back together. I wasn't quite sure about that or not. We kind of got back for, for, for love and money, you know. People needed money, and uh, 
tax bills and things like that. And uh, it kind of came together quite naturally. And it's funny that the three of us are still together now, you know, kind of kind of like that was kind of like the genesis of the band when I when I met up with the two of them, Chris and Debbie. Were you were you reticent at all about about going back in after the the original uh, breakup because there was you know things happening around the place that that caused the breakup and you you famously said that as soon as you were successful the brand started to fall apart. Yeah, that that, that is true. That is true. But uh, no, I uh, you know I was fine with it. I just thought it'd be interesting to to see where it would go. And then you know we made that album uh, No Exit. Uh, we had a hard time getting a new record deal because we didn't want to just, uh, you know, go, go out and just start playing on like a greatest hits uh, band, just playing the hits and just touring like uh, for nostalgia's sake. We, so we, it was important for us to make new music. So once we got our record deal, we made the rec- first record, No Exit. And we had that song, Maria, that was a, a big hit in the UK that kind of launched, that relaunched the band. I mean, the three of us have been together longer now than first time around. Yeah. You know, Chris, Debbie, and I. Yeah, I wow. could have never imagined all of that, you know. We have the new album coming out, and we also, it's been announced we're playing that, that gig with Iggy. We're playing the Isle of Wight Festival, and we're playing uh, Coachella. We played uh, the Coachella Festival, and that's in the, the desert out here in Palm Springs. We played a festival in uh, Pasadena, California. It was right after we did the tour in the UK, and so we were ready you know, it was like a big festival, you know, I know 50,000 people or something. And we were ready for it. We got a lot of kudos for our performance. It was with Morrissey and Bauhaus, Devo. Uh, and it was kind of cool because it's just in the Pasadena, in a, in a city. It wasn't like out in the middle of nowhere, you know. Uh-huh. So, And uh, so we got an offer to do uh, Coachella, which is the big, you know, the millennial festival. That's uh, two weekends in April. And then... Uh, it hasn't been announced yet, but um, they only announced the headliner for Glastonbury, which is Elton John. But uh, we're we're actually going to play right before Elton John at Glastonbury. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, it's not not been announced. And then we're playing the Isle of Wight. We're playing before Robbie Williams. So that's it's kind of interesting, you know, that we can play with Iggy Pop and we can play with uh, Robbie Williams. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like it kind of really explains the whole way the success of the band in a lot of ways, you know, that we can do that. It's always been, that's always been that sort of balancing the commercial with the artistic, you know, with the underground and, uh, you know, all the different various influences within the band, you know, kind of makes what, what Blondie became, you know, yeah. it's not just one thing. I like to confuse people because obviously many, many people think Debbie is Blondie, of course. And, uh, you know, the way people, you know, Alice Cooper, was Alice Cooper a band or was it Alice Cooper? Was Jethro Tull a band or was it? And, you know, so that's a bit bit of a misnomer there. And uh, then our hits, you know, having like disco hits and, you know, different things like, it's a lot, it's, it's like uh, ticking a lot of different boxes, you know, musically. Yeah. I mean, you, you sort of half hinted there when you were talking that uh, are, you, are you seeing a finishing line for you or do you just want to keep on playing till, till whenever? Uh, you know. I, I go back and forth. I uh, I've written a rock opera with my friends and uh, trying to get that uh, staged. Uh, it's called uh, "Songs from the Big Smoke." It's all about the about London. Uh, we started it before lockdown, but we wrote most of it during lockdown. And the, so the backdrop is kind of this couple during lockdown in London and reminiscing about the past, thinking about the future, you know, venues closing, people passing away. Every song is about a person or a place in London. Now I've gone from meetings with, with believe it or not, with Tim Rice to like uh, sort of college uh, theater groups and trying to get it workshop somewhere. And that was kind of, you know, that's kind of like I had a big focus on that for a while. Uh, when I was last in London, I had quite a few meetings about it. And the music's really great. And I, I really, really uh, am proud of it. So I'd like to see that come, uh, you know, I mean, worst comes to worst, I'll start my own record label and put it out, you know, that way. But uh, we'll, I'd like to see it. We need a, we need the book, you know. I mean, we have outlines for it, but you need somebody to write the, the story itself. But uh 
it's a work in progress, but um, I've been focusing on that quite a bit. So, and it's different because it's not a band. I, 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 I wrote it, I produced it and wrote it with my two friends who were actually in the, the bootleg blondie band. They're, they're super talented. It's just that they did the bootleg blondie thing because they could always, they just kept getting gigs. They were a cover band and they would do blondie songs and people would say, oh, you should do more blondie. So they wound up becoming this blondie tribute band which I actually went on tour with. I was going to say, that must freak people out when you see a Blondie tribute band and there's the drummer from Blondie in the back. Yeah, well, it was funny because I I went and did a gig. I went to see them play at a a sort of a a recreation room at a a football club in uh, Sutton, a suburb of London. And it was about 200 people there, you know, obviously Blondie fans. And uh, after a couple of beers, they took a break. I had a couple of drinks. They asked me to get up, so I played a couple of songs. It was fun. So then they kind of said, would I be interested in being like a guest? And so I just had suggested, well, I'll just do a tour. And then I thought that we would just be playing in like the back room of pubs. And then the second gigs was at uh, place Shepherd's Bush Empire, oh, right. which is like a proper gig. You know, it's 2000 people, like almost sold out. And we had some fun with that. It was fun. But they're very talented. Uh, Andy and, and Debbie Harris, actually. They're very talented. So uh, I said, we got to start doing original material. So that, that they've been, we've been working on that for some time. We have some really good, really good material though. So oh, good. we'll see where that goes. Yeah. We, I, I kind of produced it and well, I came up with the original idea and then we all collaborated on it. Like about, it's, it's a rock opera. Yeah. Um, but, your, uh, your look has become such a trademark of, of you. Uh, you used to spray hairspray and then put your head in the oven. Yeah, 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 backwards though. Not, not, don't put your face. <laughs> I wasn't in the suggesting oven. that you're attempting suicide or anything. No, not <laughs> like Frank Sinatra or Ava Gardner, no. Um, funny enough, there was a time when uh, Pete Townsend's book came out, Neil Young's autobiography came out, and Rod Stewart's autobiography came out all at the same time. And I was with my, actually, I went to see Wilco Johnson and Roger Daltrey with my friend uh, Bob Geldof. And so we're in the, in the car, just chatting away. You know, we're both big music fans. And they were just talking about autobiographies because I was working on one for a while, which I, it's, it's pretty much done. But uh, my agent is, uh, I'm not sure, I might have to switch agents. Uh-huh. Sounds so, Holly, so Hollywood. But I had offered all these deals for the book, but, you know, for because for, we're not doing it for the money. So I was, like, happy to just take a deal. And then I have this agent who's, like, trying to get the big deal. So... But hopefully that'll come out. But anyway, I read Pete's book. I read Neil Young's book, but I hadn't read Rod's book. So Bob Geldof suggested I said, we should read Rod's book. It's really good. And he has Rod has a whole chapter on hair in his book, which he would. And it turns out, guess what Rod Stewart used to do? In the oven? Put his head in the oven. Really? That's right. Because nobody had hair dryers. Well, Brian's band toured with Rod Stewart in 80, when was that, Brian, 82? 85. 85. 85. Oh, wow. Who was on drums then, you recall? Uh, Look, I I can't recall, actually. Um, Because Carmine Apice played with them, but I don't uh, know, that might have been. It might have been Carmine. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't have an oven backstage as far as I know (laughs) to do his hair. No, it was about... I think these days he's got a hairdryer these days, but... um, Right, right, right. But, you know, there's always room for an oven backstage, I suppose. No, no, I mean, no, he goes into detail about it. I was very impressed. (laughs) (laughs) No, because obviously Rod is also known for his his hair. Yep. Yeah. You know, that rooster haircut. So he has a whole chapter about what he, how he maintained his hairstyle. Yeah, so, uh, no, I, I, you know, yeah, I, I did that. You know, back then, yeah, the hair thing is, you know, rock and roll is, uh, mine's glued on pretty good still. So hair is kind of part of rock and roll, I suppose, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. But, I mean, as you age, obviously, it's all, it's just like saying with Blondie, it's it's all about the music now. It's not about, Debbie's still a beautiful woman, we're, we're still a great band, but, you know, it's really about the music. Yeah. The hits. I mean, I you know, this new album that we we've done, I'm curious to see what people think of it. The last one was pretty well received, the one called Pollinator. 
but you know, we didn't have any big hit record out of it. You know, we did some had some chart success in the UK. I'm not sure what we did with it in Australia. Um, I'd love to go back and tour in Australia again. I just don't know if we will or not. I was going to ask you, it was given that you're going to, I mean, obviously Blondie's doing the UK and stuff, but, uh, yeah, is there any any chance that that might happen? I would say there'd be a chance, but I, it would be, you know, the time for us to go, there would be, you know, coming right up now. Which, well, last time we were down there, I think we toured with Cindy Lauper, and I think Rod and Cindy are touring down there. I like the, when we did those wineries. That's that's kind of a good that's kind of a good gig. We, with the Pretenders too, we did that a few years back as well. Blondie and the Pretenders, the wineries yeah. shows. Is there anyone you haven't played with that you really would love to play with? Yeah, yeah Bruce, Bruce ah. Springsteen. Oh, yeah. I like to get in a room and play some old rock and roll songs. No, I like to go in and play some like you know garage rock with Bruce. Would be yeah. fun. I've played with Stephen Van Sant. Friend of mine has a club in uh, Lower Manhattan, and uh, a couple of New Years ago, there the Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day had his New Year's Eve party there, and the band was like me and uh, Steve Van Sant and uh, Tommy Stinson from the Replacements and uh, a bunch of other people. Billy Joe was singing, playing guitar. So that's kind of jamming, like like with people like that. It's kind of fun. I like to play with Bruce. You know, yeah. that would be fun. We've crossed paths a bunch of times. The last time I saw him, he was uh, got up and played with my uh, friend Mike from uh, Social Distortion. Uh, that band Social Distortion were playing a, a festival in Asbury Park. And uh, we, we headlined the day before. And uh, we were one of the headliners. There was a bunch of other bands. Social Distortion were playing the next day, and I, I knew for sure that Bruce would be there for, for to see Mike. Uh, so anyway, I, I went back to see Mike, and uh, I went to go and see him in the room, and it was just like Bruce and Mike were in the room rehearsing a couple of songs because Bruce was going to get up and play. So I was just kind of like on the side, like watching, and I caught Bruce's eye, and he like waved me over. So then where everybody was big buddy-buddy then, so... I'm a big fan of Bruce's, so, you know, Jersey, I'm from Jersey. Now, uh, uh, do you play with Dylan? How did you find that experience? That was great. Bob's great. Yeah, it's great. You know, it was good. He's a big music fan, you know. That, that, that The thing is, I like to think anybody that's involved in the music business, so they were really basically, you know, they had the love of music, obviously. Yeah. You know, I in his book, he talks about it, about, you know, when he was like on the way to school, when Buddy, the plane went down, he he was going to be going to see Buddy Holly. And he told me about that when we, we had dinner, he was bringing up stuff like that. He's, he's a big music fan. Um, we spent a week in a in a studio in London with, with uh, Dave Stewart's studio. And uh, we recorded like every day for like hours. And I thought we were making like the next like, you know, blonde on blonde. And then like... One track came out on some huh. album, you yeah. know. But I've got the tape. I've got a cassette of, the, of all the tracks that we did. That was fun, though. It was really fun. Now, Had what, some good dinners. I'm looking behind you. I can't see your doctor of music hanging up anywhere on the on the wall behind you from the University oh, yeah, of Gloucestershire. It there. is over I there. I just got a second. I just got a second one. Oh, what what have you got now? I got another doctorate from Chichester University. Oh, not framed yet. Yeah, that was just the other week. Yeah. Because the, the the Klemberg Drumming Project, as it's called, was started at Chichester University. Oh, okay. And it's a guy called Dr. Marcus Smith who um, was trying to make the analogy between sport and drumming, basically. And he was a UK Olympic boxing coach. And when you think about a boxer in the ring, you could make that comparison to uh, a drummer playing, say, if you're playing high intensity punk rock, you know, you're playing real fast and then the song stops and obviously your heart rate's going to drop and it's, then it's going to go back up like for the next song. And then you would think of the boxer when you're in the ring for those couple of minutes that they're boxing at a high intensity, your heart rate's really up there. And then you sit down, your heart rate's going to drop. And for you to be able to control your heart rate, to have the, the endurance to be able to get, you know, to with, with, withstand all the, you know, the, the way your heart rate's going up and down like that, it's, you have to have a certain level of fitness. So it was proven that I kind of had that fitness level due to him, uh, Dr. Smith, like wiring me up and taking oxygen and like wiring me up during shows. And he could find my heart rate on each song. And and it was repetitive. I mean, it's scientific. It's like all experimental over and over and over again. 
supposed to be a one-off thing, but being that we stayed, Blondie had been together for so long, he would just come when I'd be in England and would just like wire me up and, and exper- do the experiment over and over. So he wound up coming up with a thesis and that's how I got my, uh, my doctorate due to my, uh, my work with him on that. So yeah. Fascinating stuff. That, you know, it's a positive, positive spin on being a musician. And it's just about the whole aging process, you know, because you have to have your, your faculties, you know, you have to have the facility as you age to be able to, if you're going to do, you know, whatever you're going to do, you got to be able to be fit enough to do it, you know, especially playing music. If you're a horn player, guitar player, people get hands, arthritis, or whatever, you know, all different things. And then the whole, the mental aspect of it too, they investigate that stuff that goes on in the brain. And, you know, the, it's a popular subject now after all this time, you know, there's a lot of, you know, mental health issues in the, in the show business in general. I mean, go back to Judy Garland or, you know, whoever up to Keith Moon. To, mm. So they kind of, they, they kind of study that too, you know? Yeah. Well, it's a been, lot of stuff. It's been fabulous having a chat to you. Thank you so much for, for being, uh, being with us today. We really, uh, we really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope, yeah. I hope, hey, we, hope you can get here. I hope you can get back here again. Yeah, I hope so too. Maybe with somebody else, but yeah, I hope so. And yeah. definitely tell Ray I said hello. I will say hello to Ray for you, Clem. No worries. Yeah, yeah. So uh, peace and love. Yeah, yeah, you too. Thanks, Clem. Cheers. Okay. Appreciate Thanks your time. Bye. Okay, bye. See ya. Bye. Yeah, that's a little song from uh, Blondie called I've always, I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, which is the one that people talk about uh, being uh, one of the great drum performances from Clem Burke. So I thought we'd throw that in there with a little bit of Call Me as well, just so you get a little bit of an idea of what a really good drummer Clem Burke actually is. Sometimes you don't kind of pick that up when you listen to songs, but his stuff is really good. He's a good drummer. He's a real good drummer and a real good bloke. Yes, absolutely. And it was a pleasure to have him on the program. As it is, our next guest, who's an absolute beauty, uh, uh, Happy Days was such a big show in the in, in, in when we were all growing up. It was a monstrous TV hit. Um, I'm yep. sure you were every bit as big a fan, I know, when we were doing this interview, every bit as big a fan of the show as I am. Yeah, um, it, was, it was probably the biggest show on TV at the time, I reckon. Oh, yeah. You know, everybody, you know, you look Mad Magazine around those times and there's always pictures of Fonzie and Darth Vader everywhere. <laughs> um, 
you know, they were the two biggest icons at, at the time, Darth Vader and Fonzie. Well, so we should see we should see if we can get Darth Vader on the on the show. <laughs> yeah. I am your father, Brian Mannix. Oh, there he is! There he's just arrived. Fantastic. <laughs> James Earl Jones did the voice of Darth Vader. God, he's got the most he's got the most powerful voice of all time. James Earl Jones. He's still he alive too. He's ninety. I think he might be ninety something, but he's still alive. Yeah. I'll get him on the show as well. I am your great-grandfather, Maddox. Um, <laughs> but what we do have on the show is Don Don Most, Donny Most, uh, Ralph Mel from Happy Days. So uh, let's – it's uh, without any – this is part one of a chat we've had with him about a whole range of things, including his music and Happy Days and Ralph Melf and all sorts of stuff. So let's get stuck into it. All right. It's a potpourri of information. There Ooh. he is. Well, look at you. Looking rather handsome. Isn't he? Oh, well, well thank you. Wait, who's Kevin and who's Brian? I'm I'm Kevin oh. in the dark T-shirt and the grey hair. The older-looking gentleman and the young-looking youthful fella is Brian. Oh, youthful. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice to meet you both. And you. Oh, lo- lovely to meet you. Thank you. This this is a thrill. And, uh, and discovering the musical side of you has been a bloody treat too, just quietly. Yeah, yeah, I'm... I was hoping it was less of a secret now, but um, it's still not known to a lot of people, but I'm trying to change that. But the fact of the matter is I I was singing before I was acting when I was pretty young. I was, I was pursuing that. My first love was singing, and I was doing it when I professionally, the summer I turned, I was 14, turning 15, and I was singing in a nightclub act in the Catskill Mountains, which was a resort area upstate New York and they had a lot of hotels with nightclubs so I spent that summer singing in all those nightclubs <laughs> hang on how does a 14 year old get to sing in nightclubs <laughs> I don't know how they didn't have uh, certain laws I guess in place then I, I was going to a school for singing and acting and and it was run by um, an old vaudevillian named Charlie Lowe and he had a booking agent so he would put together some of his best students created an act for us and this booking agent would book us, um, you know, at all the hotels. And, uh, yeah, I guess they weren't as uh, strict about those laws <laughs> as they are now. Um, <laughs> it, it was certainly fun. What sort of songs were you singing at 14? Well, you see, I always loved, I loved the standards, the jazz standards, the great American songbook, if you will. I've always loved that from the time I was very young, I started, what introduced me to that, probably my, my mom had a lot, was a teenager and young adult during the 40s, the swinger. She had a lot of the albums. Then I saw the movie, The Jolson Story, which was about the great Al Jolson. Then I started listening to a radio station in New York, WNEW, hosted by William B. Williams, and he would play all the greats. And I'd go to sleep every night listening to you know Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Tony Bennett, and then I started getting into jazz and listening to a lot of that. So that influenced me tremendously. And so when we were doing the nightclub act, I was singing those songs, you know, uh, some of the songs from the twenties and thirties and forties, and and um, I loved it. I mean, I I also you know as I grew up um, a teenager in the late sixties, I also then got into classic rock and loved that music too. But what I've performed mainly as a singer is, is the jazz standards. Yeah. Some blues mixed in there, blues and jump blues, that kind of stuff. Did you, right. ever, did you ever write? Did you do a songwriting, anything you ever moved into at any time, Don? No. No, songwriting was not anything that I felt a, a, any particular proclivity towards. I think I could write with somebody. You know, it hasn't, the opportunity hasn't presented itself. But I think that possibly if I was with somebody who was a writer, then that would sort of, you know, be a catalyst where I hear something and then from there I, it, it might, you know, become a, a domino effect and then I'd have something and influence them. So maybe, maybe I'll still dabble in that at some point. Who knows? Um, but as of yet, I have not. I have not done anything in that field. Right. What about touring? Is there a chance that you'll go out and sing on tour again? I would love to tour. There was some talk at one point with Anson Williams and I doing one down in Australia. 
And then COVID hit, and so it kind of put a damper on that. Uh, maybe we could still do it, um, or maybe I'd do it. I have some people in Italy who are talking to me about doing a tour, trying to get one in England. And uh, around the U.S., I, I've just, you know, sort of ad hoc. It's been a club in New York, a club in L.A., a club in Chicago. It hasn't been a real bona fide tour, and I'd like to do that. So I'm hoping we're going to get to that. I have a, a new manager now uh, on the music side who also was my producer on this latest uh, this CD we just finished. And his name's Tony Mantor, and I'm hoping, you know, maybe we'll get some nice tours going. That would be fun. You've done, a, you've done a cover version of Smoke from a Distant Fire, which is a song I've loved forever and a day That when the Sanford Townsend yeah. band did it. It's a great song. It's got a great lyric. I didn't realise it would lend itself so beautifully to the way you've done it. Yeah. I, I like you, uh, was a big fan of that song. I loved it. came out, I guess, late 70s, I'm guessing, yeah. Sanford Townsend. Beautifully done. They did a great job with that song, and I loved it. Um, so when I was talking with my producer... Tony Mantor, you know, we were talking about not only doing jazz standards, but uh, maybe something from, you know, the classic rock era that I love that we could do something that could almost fit into the album. And um, I brought up that song to him. And then he said, you know, uh, I once heard it done kind of slow and bluesy and it was really cool. So maybe we should think about doing it that way. And I said, yeah, I love that idea. He, he got it with his guitar player who they arranged together and came up with a, you know, beautiful track. It was so easy to kind of slip into it. You know, it, it, it sort of forced me to dig a little and find something that I didn't know I had, you yeah. know, something a little different, it, which is good. It pushed me into a into different uh, territory, and, yeah. and it was nice. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really nice version. And it's a song that hasn't been done to death by a whole lot of other people, so it's it's really nice, right. nice to hear it. It's a pretty big thing too, Donnie. You know, it's not, you know, some easy pop song. There's a, you know, that's some really difficult bits that you absolutely nail in that song. Um, oh, did, thank you, know, you. Did you take long to record it or you just, now nah, I've got this or, because I was listening to it and going, wow, there's, there's a whole lot going on with your voice in this. It's terrific. Oh, thank you so much. It it didn't take particularly long. I mean, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and Tony is too. So, you know, we'd go through the whole song a few times and then attack it, you know, piece by piece to see if we can improve upon it and and get the best of the best. I think I think what's interesting for me is that my initial training was a little bit more. I mean, one of my voice teachers taught opera, you know. And and she wasn't trying to teach me opera, but but she was getting me to find the way to be able to use your voice in, in the best possible way. And then I had other teachers as well. And then all the different music that I've listened to over the years, I'm influenced by. So I have a pretty good range as a result of it. And I can get big if I need to, but I also have found a way to measure it and 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 caress it differently because I've heard so many different singers. So the years of listening to all that great music has, has helped because I never had a band where, where I could like, you know, okay, let's rehearse this or let's, let's jam or let's try something. I didn't have like a band where you're constantly doing that. And I think what happened was I, I put the music aside when I started focusing on acting when I was about 16 is when I really got serious about acting, and I put the music aside. I used it over the years at times when I did musical theater and every once in a while did, you know, did some of the standards at some different kinds of events and at jazz clubs, a little little taste here and there, but I didn't do too much. But about eight years ago is when I said, if I'm ever going to do the music that I loved in the way I want, I better start because, you know, it's not... Time is passing. So I decided to do that about eight years ago. So there's been a real a real evolution to what, what I've become as a singer. And um, it's it's interesting that this is happening at this point in my life. Yeah. Oh, it must be thoroughly enjoyable. And it must surprise the hell out of a lot of people that, that this voice and this kind of uh, entertainer comes out of you. <laughs> yeah, people are 
There are a lot of people who are very surprised and not expecting it. I was facing that as a, as a bit of a challenge at times because, you know, when my representation is trying to get me booked in different venues here, whether it be a bigger performing arts center or something like that, they're like, going, well, of course, you know, we know him from Happy Days, but we don't know him as a singer. And our, is our audience going to know him as a singer? Are they going to buy tickets, you know, because they, they don't know him that way? So it was a weird thing, like you're competing against yourself, you know, of the image of who you were. So hopefully, you know, a song, a record like Smoke from a Distant Fire, if it, if it catches fire, that would certainly add help in my, my uh, attempts to break out and, and, and do, do this on a bigger scale, on, on, a, on a really big scale. Yeah. If we can, can we go back and talk about the acting? Because you mentioned around about the age of sixteen, the, was it was seeing Jack Nicholson in a, in Five Easy Pieces, the epiphany that that you went, that's what I want to do. Well, that definitely was one of the, one of them. But I'm I'm curious how you knew that. Um, I guess I ta- I talked about that in some interview. I'm sure. Yep. Is that how you? Yep. Even before that, you know, I was seeing Paul Newman in a lot of movies during that time, who I loved and James Dean, and of course, Brando. But for me, it was, uh, for some reason, Dean, even more so than Brando, maybe had the way I was exposed uh, to, to it. But uh, Dean had a tremendous impact on me, and Newman, and then Dustin Hoffman, uh, when he came out in The Graduate. And then you go from seeing him in The Graduate to Midnight Cowboy, yeah. and that was something. And then I saw Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces, and I was blown away. I was 17 when I saw that. And then I saw every film he made right after that, you know, films like um, Carnal Knowledge and uh, King of Marvin Gardens, which most an easy writer. And, and then um, The Last Detail in Chinatown. And I got to see, we were shooting Happy Days in Paramount Studios. And then they shot Chinatown in Paramount Studios. So I found that they were shooting. I um, went over and crashed the set because it said no visitors. But I was in my 50s wardrobe. This was a 1930s film. So people just thought, I, you know, maybe I was an extra and I belonged there. <laughs> and I just crashed, crashed the set, saw Nicholson, and I was like, you know, like a, a deer in headlights. Then I actually got to talk to him for about 20 minutes. And that was it. I was like, you know, I was in heaven. But you know, th- that's when I really... Uh, so at 16 and 17 during that period, there were some great movies. You know, um, it was a renaissance, so, so to speak, where there were m- these movies that were almost like ind- independent films, but within the studio system. The Graduate, I mentioned, The Last Picture Show, and Five Easy Pieces, and on and on. Those, those kind of movies, Midnight Cowboy. It was a great time uh, in filmmaking, and, and it had a big influence on me. Oh, wow. That's great. Brian wants to know why you didn't go to and see Faye Dunaway. If you're on the set of Chinatown, for God's sake, <laughs> why didn't you go and see Faye? Well, I would have, but she wasn't there that day, so <laughs> <laughs> didn't yeah. get a chance. So, so Donnie, you were studying um, university at university and you're in your third year and then you say to yourself, well, during the summer break, I might just uh, go to Hollywood see if I can get an acting job. And you did. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was not quite as direct as that, it, but you're close. I decided in my junior year that maybe I'd go out to California because at that time in New York, it was mainly commercials, which I was doing a lot of. I was doing, getting a lot of work in commercials, but it was mainly that, Broadway and soap operas. There was very li- little filmmaking going on in New York, you know, every once in a while, but and television, uh, network, primetime television. It was all out in L.A. and the movies. So I said, I'm going to go out there during the summer um, after my junior year and see if I can make some connections and sort of pave the way so that after my senior year in college, I can go out there and maybe have an agent and, and then pursue the whole acting thing out there. So I did. I went out there for the summer, and and I was able to get through you know because I was working in New York, um, an agent recommended me to to meet certain agents out in L.A. and I was able to land an agent and they sent me out on auditions right away during that summer, 
And then I landed a few parts and guest roles very quickly. So at the end of the summer, they talked to me and said, you've got some momentum going and you should think about staying, you know, take six months off of college. You could always go back, but just take six months off because you got some momentum. So I just, yeah, hey, I'm doing that. I didn't have to think more than a millisecond when they said that. I actually had flown home for my sister's wedding and then flew back to L.A. a couple days later and um, said, I'm going to give it a shot for six months. And then I got another part and then nothing for like two months. And I was like, oh, this was a big mistake. Uh Uh, And then and then the audition for Happy Days came up. So it was uh, it was an interesting path. So was Ralph Melf the, the part that you went for and that you got? And I know it was a very quick uh, sort of turnaround from when you got the part to when you actually started filming because you, you were a mid-season replacement yeah. or something. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. No, I was auditioning for the role of Potsy. And um, th- then what happened was Ron Howard and Anson Williams, Anson played Potsy and Ron, of course, was Richie, had done a pilot of Happy Days um, about a year and a half earlier and it didn't sell. Yeah. So they put it on love American style as an episode, but it didn't go. Um, it had Ron and Anson, Marion Russ was the mom. And those were the only characters that from the one we know of that were in the original. Then Greece is a hit on Broadway. American graffiti is a hit in the movies. So now ABC is like saying, Oh, wait a minute. We had, something that was like a 50 show. Um, maybe we should think about re- revisiting that. And they talked to Gary Marshall and they said, but I think we need to do a new pilot. Ron and Anson might be too old now to be, you know, for high school. And Gary's like, no, no, they'll be okay. Well, ABC made them go through screen testing, a bunch of other actors, hopefuls to play Richie and Potsy and screen test Ron and Anson who had already done it. Oh, wow. But they wanted to see wanted to see them now to see how it would work and how it would fit. So after the screen test, they decided that Gary is right. Ron and Anson still fit the parts and they'll be Richie and Potsy. But they liked my screen test so much. And I found out later it was Michael Eisner, who was at Paramount at the time, who liked, who said you should put him in the show. And, you know, there was a small part in the pilot for a guy named Ralph and they said, you know, he's into cars and it's Ralph mouth and he's a bit of a jock and he's into cars and that's all they knew, you know, and he had a small part. So they said, we'll make that a regular role and, and we'll put him in. We'll guarantee you 10 out of 13 episodes. And, and um, my agent called and told me, and we promptly turned it down. We passed on. Wow. It. Yeah. Because, I was up for, I was much more interested in dramatic work. I was not looking to do a sitcom. And because of what I told you, seeing Nicholson and James Dean and Paul mm. Newman, and um, I was more interested in that. And I was up for a TV movie at that time. That was a dramatic uh, film, World War II, uh, written by the same guy who wrote the movie The Summer of 42, which I loved back yeah. then when I was a kid. And it was going to be directed by the guy who directed Brian's song, the original Brian's song, which was the biggest TV movie ever in terms of the ratings. So I said, this would be great. And my audition went great. And my agent said, they loved you and you have a great chance of getting this part, but they're not going to know for about a week or two. So we decided on that Friday night. Well, I've got a good chance to get that other one. That's what I really want. He and I said, let's pass on happy days. And we did. But wow. Then, but as fate, as fate, I know it's crazy, but as fate would have it, my agent happened to play basketball every Saturday at Gary Marshall's house. So he's playing the next day at Gary's house, and Gary's like takes him aside during the break in the game and says, What's with your boy turning me, turning us down? What's going on here? And my agent explained, and Gary promptly said, instead of seven out of 13, we'll give him 10 out of 13. And instead of $750 an episode, we'll give him $1,000 an episode. And my agent called me on Monday and 
said, we might want to reconsider because Gary thinks this is going to go as a midseason replacement. And he told me the story. And, and I said, well, what about the other one? You know, he says, well, we're not going to know, you know, and could turn this down. That might still not still might not happen. So we made the decision to go with Happy Days. So it's, it's crazy when I think back wow. about how faded it's crazy. <laughs> did, did the telly movie get made and was it a success? The telly movie got made. I would have gotten the part because they they were waiting to see if Jack Warden, Jack Warden would do the part of the uncle and they thought I was a young Jack Warden. Yeah. Well, Jack Warden, he was in Europe doing a film so he couldn't give him an answer. When he finally got around to reading it, he took the part. So I would have gotten the part. I mean, it was successful. You know, it was a TV movie. It was successful, but, um, you know, that was it. Uh, <laughs> so who knows? Maybe if I'd done that, I would be known for my dramatic skills <laughs> and not my comedic skills. But, yeah. but lately I've been getting to do my dramatic skills because I finally, it was very difficult getting away from that image. But now that I'm getting older, it's one good thing about getting older is, is this, I look, you know, I'm certainly in a whole different, kind of range than when I was in Happy Days and there's more distance from that show and I'm older and now I'm playing everything. I, I played a, a local pastor. Then I went to playing a polygamist from a pastor to a polygamist <laughs> and then to, then to a, then a king and then a career criminal, then a prison guard. And now I just did a Western. So it, it's great. I'm getting to do, you know, the kind of acting kind of, changing and diversity of, of roles that I've always wanted to do. And so I'm very grateful and thankful uh, at this stage of my life that this, I feel like a second part of my career is, is, is happening. All right, there's uh, part one of uh, Don Most. When we get into the second part, some really interesting stuff about meeting John Lennon on the set of Happy Days, about Ringo Starr visiting, about pres- all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff is coming up. Um, in the second part, and we're going to finish the show with uh, with a Don Mo song, his version of uh, of Mac the Knife. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Well, Glenn I, Burke, I wonder. Almost. I wonder if um, John Lennon was into Darth Vader as well as Happy Days. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> he probably was. I guess we'll never know, Jeff. No, we we'll never know. Unfortunately. No. Um, mm. Burkhardt's Driving Excellence, uh, we want to mention them once again. Uh, don't forget the, their telephone number, which is, is firmly entrenched. One, there it is. One three hundred triple five five seven six. There you go. Sir. Easy. See, Brian knows yeah. it. Brian knows what oh. to do. Brian knows how to oh, well, phone up I'm, and do it. I've already called him. Mercots.edu.au is the website, so go and check that out. Driver awareness workshops, yes. defensive driving, all those things. If you you're not as good a driver as you think you are, so go and do something about it. Yeah. We're going yeah, to finish with uh, Donny Mo singing. Now, this is a live performance of him doing Mac the Knife. Uh, and we we mentioned uh, and played last week Smoke from Distant Fire, the uh, the version of the uh, old Sanford Townsend band song that uh, that he does. Uh, so that uh, all that stuff is available uh, on Spotify and all those uh, places where you go and get your music. But uh, check out his uh, his latest stuff because it's really good. But this, I think it's about 2014. This was recorded in a nightclub in New York, um, and he he sings the hell out of this. It's it's such a great song. You ever sung Mac the Knife? Um- no, not Mac the Knife, but I have sung um, some Bobby Darren songs. I sang um, uh, Beyond the Sea. Oh, and I, I sung, love uh, that song. <laughs> how many movies finishes with Beyond the Sea? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> you know, cue Beyond the Sea, roller credits. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is. Um, it, but it's such a good song. It's a great song. And I really like his version of Clementine. I sing that as well. But, okay. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Bobby Darren. I think yeah. he's terrific. I think he's a, a very good singer. I have to say, Kevin Spacey playing him in the movie, I thought he was terrific doing that. Well, he looks like him to yeah, start he with, does. doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. He really does. That was a good film. That was actually called Beyond the Sea, I think, wasn't it? I think it might have been yeah. called Beyond the Sea, yeah. But we're not finishing with Beyond the Sea. <laughs> no, we're not. I couldn't find that. I couldn't find oh. Donnie singing that. I would have, if, I, if I'd have been you able to rolled. find Donnie singing that, I would have done it. <laughs> yeah, you could have rolled the credits with Beyond the Sea. So instead, roll the credits and play Mac the Knife. Until next time, Brian, take care of yourself. Thanks, Kev, you too, and uh, have a great week.
Oh, the shark, babe, has such teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Mag Heath, babe, and he keeps it out of sight. You know when that shark bites with his teeth, babe, scarlet billows start to spread. Fancy gloves, though, as old Mag Heath, babe. So there's never, never a trace of red. Let's let Bango now. Now if you hear about Louis Miller, he disappeared, babe. After drawing out all of his hard-earned cash And now Mac, he spends just like a sailor Could it be a boy's done something rash? Miss Lottelinia Oh, and Lucy Brown Yes, that line 